0: and merch button click on that it'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that hey on the swag that i'm using it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear sports history network and my favorite podcaster the sports history network store shop there today
1: triangles the life and times of an nfl original team Season 2, Episode 7, A Last Hurrah. By 1927, National Football League original team the Dayton Triangles faced dire circumstances. The managerial decision not to play games in Dayton meant the team received minimal coverage from the local newspapers. Worse, rather than missing the Triangles and pro football, Local fans mainly ignored them in favor of high school, college, and independent team games in the fall. Few people knew or identified with the players. With the retirement of longtime lineman Ed Sauer, only Hobby Kinderdine, Lou Bartlow, and Lee Fenner remained as players early fans of the team would remember. In other words, out of sight, out of mind. Team owner Carl Stork and manager Mike Riddell must have known their window of opportunity to turn things around was closing. They needed to rethink their marketing strategy radically. Their solution was to recast the Triangles as a hometown team. While Riddell did not completely give up on pursuing national level talent, he focused on players with ties to the local community whether homegrown players who had played at local high schools or players who had made their marks at local colleges. Their hope was to hearken back to the Halcyon days of Al Mart, Babe Zimmerman, and Norb Saxtetter and bring crowds back for home games at Triangle Park. Many newcomers on the 1927 roster were former University of Dayton players. Among these were end Sam Hippa. Lineman Bill Balanich and backs Augie Cabrina and Walter Sneeze at you. The returning Lou Mart was also a University of Dayton alumnus. Returning lineman Johnny Becker had played his high school ball at Steele in town. Sports writer Preston Heinebaugh projected the team to be a fine one. All it needed, he stated, was a coach who was familiar with the Notre Dame system of ball the University of Dayton Flyers played and with which the former Flyer players were comfortable. Reading between the lines, the clear implication was that the coach should not be Carl Stork. In fact, Lou Mart would go on to coach the team that season, relegating Stork to the single role of franchise owner. While Stork lurked in the background, Riddell succeeded in signing a few players with a national profile. One of them, Jimmy Tays, was a noted halfback at Penn State University. Another, Frank Sillen, played college ball at Western Maryland. The most notable signing by far, though, was fullback Earl Britton. During his college days at Illinois, Britton had built a reputation as a top-notch defensive player. More than that, Britain had been the blocking back for the already legendary Harold Red Grange, the galloping ghost who was scheduled to invade Triangle Park with his New York Yankees in October. The New York game was the only scheduled home game for the season, so it seems likely that Stork and Riddell were hedging their bets. Grange, widely considered the greatest running back ever to that point, would certainly draw a huge crowd. Perhaps Stork and Riddell hoped their fans would catch the pro-grid bug and make more home games profitable. Perhaps hoping to spur a fan interest in their road games, the Triangles scheduled to play Powers Green Bay, the Chicago Bears and Cardinals, and the defending champion Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. Meanwhile, they also scheduled more non-league contests to supplement their income. The season started on a losing note in Green Bay on September 18th. Curly Lambeau did all the damage, scoring two second-half touchdowns as the Packers shut out the Triangles 14-0. The Triangles now faced two games on the following weekend, September 24th and 25th. That Saturday at Philadelphia, Dayton shocked defending champion Frankfurt 6-3 in the latter's opening game. The Triangle's defense bent but did not break, despite having their backs to the goal four times. Two Frankfurt passes fell in the end zone for touchbacks. Otherwise, the Yellow Jackets dominated play. The home team's Dick Moynihan opened the scoring with a 21-yard field goal in the first quarter. The score remained 3 to nothing until the fourth quarter when the Triangles got a break. Dayton guard Pup Graham picked up a Paul Fitzgibbon fumble and raced 70 yards with a game-winning score, stunning the 6,000 fans in attendance. The unlikely 6-3 triumph was more than simply the Triangle's first consequential win in years. It would prove to be the last NFL victory in franchise history. Buoyed by the happy result in Philadelphia, the Triangles made the short trip to Orange, New Jersey to play a local non-league game the following day. Lou Mart threw a touchdown pass to end Red Joseph to put the Triangles on the board first, but Dayton gave the touchdown back on an interception return. Tiring after the previous day's contest, the Triangles struggled to hold on, but managed to salvage a 7-7 tie in front of 5,000 cheering New Jersey fans. Returning home, the team now focused its attention on the Titanic matchup against Grange's New York Yankees at Triangle Park. Once again, Dayton's press played up the game to the greatest extent possible. They featured Grange heavily, of course. In an interview, his former teammate Britton opined at length about how Grange was actually underrated as a defensive and offensive player. There were profiles of Yankees' halfback Eddie Tryon, fullback Bo Melinda, and quarterback William Wild Bill Kelly. The papers even played up the Triangle's homegrown aspect with reporting on former high school foes Eddie Siebert from Steele and Frank Sillen from Stivers, now both teammates on the Triangles. The stage was set then, on October 2nd, 1927, for what would become the last professional football game ever played in Dayton, Ohio, and the last consequential game in Dayton Triangles history. It was one day shy of seven years since the first NFL game played against the Columbus Panhandles, just as on that day, nearly seven years before, The weather was hot. The paid attendance of approximately 6,000 broke the record set when the Triangles played Jim Thorpe's Canton Bulldogs in 1920 at Triangle Park. Preston Heinebaugh of the Dayton Herald estimated that an additional 1,000 unpaid attendees tried to watch the game from nearby hilltops, rooftops, and trees. Among the paid attendees was former Ohio State and pro star Chick Harley. The stakes were high, perhaps higher than the players themselves knew. Later, press reports indicated that Mike Reddell had secured a large guaranteed payout from the New York Giants to play at the polo grounds, if Dayton won the game. The Triangles had early chances. Britton missed an early 43-yard field goal attempt, but made a 40-yarder in the second quarter to send the Triangles to halftime with a 3-0 lead. The game turned in the third quarter when New York's Wild Bill Kelly made a long punt return to the Triangle's two-yard line. There was controversy on the play. Some observers thought Kelly had stepped out of bounds before Lou Partlow made the tackle that forestalled a New York touchdown. That score came shortly after on a one-yard plunge by Wes Fry. The extra point failed. Britain attempted a field goal in the third quarter from 47 yards to tie the game, but failed. And Red Joseph blocked a fourth quarter field goal attempt by the Yankees, keeping the game close. A final drive by the Triangles was halted by a Yankees interception, sealing New York's 6-3 victory. The triangles limited Grange on the ground, but he was able to complete some tricky passes, apparently throwing across his body more than once. Bob Husted, writing for the Herald, noted that Grange was hardly the galloping ghost of old, having picked up extra weight that slowed him down. Husted reported that as a runner, Grange gained only eight yards from scrimmage on the day. In fact, Partlow was the true star back of the game battering New York's beefy line with the same gusto he had shown a full decade earlier, despite the sweltering heat. Late in the game, Grange attempted an off-tackle run. In the course of tackling Grange, Triangle's guard Coral Pleasant Zimmerman hit the legendary back's knee. The following year, Grange's business manager Cash Pyle reportedly told Triangle's manager Mike Riddell that Zimmerman's hit wrenched Grange's knee. According to what Pyle told Riddell, Grange aggravated the injury a few weeks later, most likely against the Chicago Bears on October 16th. Due to opponents' contractual obligations that required Grange to play in every game, he was unable to rest the knee. Grange continued playing with an iron brace, but by the end of the 1927 season was hobbled. He initially announced his retirement but eventually returned to play several more seasons in the NFL. The Triangle's reward for their valiant effort was another two-game weekend on October 8th and 9th. Saturday, October 8th, found them back in Philadelphia to face Frankfurt again, this time playing the Yellow Jackets to a scoreless tie in muddy conditions. A Triangle's interception snuffed out the most serious Frankfurt threat, while the Yellow Jackets blocked Britain's field goal try that could have given the Triangles their second win against Frankfurt that season. Then Stork and Riddell arranged to hold the fast Broadway Limited train so the team could take it from Philadelphia to Chicago, where they played the Cardinals the following day, Sunday, October 9th. In another mud bath that featured numerous missed chances, the game stayed scoreless until almost the end, when Ben Jones's long pass to Red Strader set up Strader's short touchdown run, giving Chicago a hard-fought seven-to-nothing victory. The following Sunday, the Triangles played a non-league game against the Ashland Armco's, coming away with a scoreless tie. During the week leading up to the Triangles' first visit to face the Providence Steamrollers in Rhode Island, the Buffalo franchise one of the NFL's founding members, failed. The Triangles had scheduled a game in Buffalo on November 13th, and the demise of the former All-Americans, Bisons, Rangers, Bisons team forced Riddell to scramble in filling the date. He initially tried to bring the New York Giants to Triangle Park, but negotiations went nowhere. Ultimately, Riddell booked another game at Green Bay for November 13th. The end of Buffalo left Dayton as the last original NFL League franchise. In Providence on October 23rd, passing made the difference in another close game. The Triangle's once-vaunted passing game was outdone by the Steamrollers, as the aerial combination of Curly Ogden to Wildcat Wilson in the final period set up Bill Pritchard's five-yard touchdown run, giving Providence the 7-0 victory. Sunday, October 30th, saw the Triangles make a return trip to Chicago, this time to face the Bears in front of 10,000 fans at Wrigley Field. Dayton held their own with Chicago in the scoreless first half with punting the dominant theme. Sneeze Ajiu helped keep Dayton in the game with his running. The Triangles went to the lead in the third quarter when Bill Balanich returned a fumbled punt for a touchdown but the extra point attempt failed. From there, the Bears rallied, wearing Dayton down, and scored two rushing touchdowns in the final period to claim a 14-6 decision. The win left Chicago as the only unbeaten team in the league, a condition not destined to last. In the hastily scheduled return trip to Green Bay on November 13th, the Packers squeaked past the Triangles 6-0. Dayton mainly controlled field position as Britain outpunted Vern Llewellyn. Green Bay finally broke through with a long pass from Red Dunn to Eddie Kotal, setting up Llewellyn's short run on fourth down for the only score of the day. Frank Sillen went 40 yards on a pass from Britain late in the game, but the triangles were unable to score. With the loss at Green Bay, the Dayton Triangle's season ended with an NFL record of one win, six losses, and a tie, leaving Dayton in 10th place of the 11 teams that made it all the way through 1927. Only the Duluth Eskimos finished with a worse winning percentage, and they ceased operations after the season, returning their franchise back to the league. In the rest of the National Football League, there were still games to be played. With this in mind, the Triangles sold Earl Britton's contract to Frankfurt for the remainder of the 1927 season. After the year was over, lineman Pup Graham was acclaimed as a second-team All-Pro. For the Dayton Triangles, the writing was now clearly on the proverbial wall. The days of professional football in the Gem City were numbered. Stivers and Roosevelt High Schools, planning their city championship game, decided they needed to move the contest to the University of Dayton's stadium. The reason, Triangle Park, which the Dayton Triangles could never fill themselves, lacked the seating capacity for the 12,000 spectators the two schools expected. Furthermore, the park's facilities, now operated by the city of Dayton, were deteriorating. A section of the bleachers gave way in October when rowdy visiting high school fans from Steubenville crowded onto them during a Stivers home game at the park. When Carl Stork accepted an offer of a promotion and transfer to become assistant director of personnel at General Motors Corporation in Detroit starting in 1928, he became an absentee franchise owner. Next time, Soldiering On. Triangles, the life and times of an NFL original team. Written and produced by Bruce Edward Smith. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. For more episodes, plus bonus content, please check out daytontrianglespodcast.com.
0: Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports gesture year, Starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone, trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I am through if
1: you're through.